Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford. Hi, and I'm Dr. Matt Hannon, and welcome to Local Zero. In this episode, we're talking about jobs, skills, and training to deliver net zero homes that are fit for the future. We'll be joined by Dr. Joe Patterson, a senior research fellow at Cardiff University. Joe is a friend of the pod, and we've talked to her earlier in the series about how we heat our homes. Today, though, Joe will share her thoughts about the sorts of skills and jobs the UK will need to develop as we start to decarbonise our buildings and integrate them into smarter energy networks. We can't all be expected to know everything. It's, it's not possible. But I think if people understand why the changes are needed, I think that really helps. If they know why they're doing something differently to what they were doing before, it helps them to deliver the project better and it helps them to operate what they're using better. Also going to be joined by Adam Chapman, director of HeatGeek. HeatGeek was created to give expert advice on all aspects of the heating industry to both end users and industry professionals. It's a one-stop shop to find out everything from how to bleed a radiator to selecting the right heat pump. Historically, they put all the onus on the back office end because that's where the shirt and ties are and the installer, he'll just plug the pipes together. No, the most important part of that process is the last person putting the pipes together. And it's a real bumper episode because that's not all. Fraser's also been chatting with Jonathan Atkinson, co-founder of Carbon Co-op, all about retrofitting houses and the just transition. The energy transition is taking place. There's no argument about that. That is happening now. For us, it's about how that transition takes place and how citizens, people and communities are involved in that transition. So as always, you can reach out to us on our dedicated Twitter handle at LocalZeroPod to get involved with discussions over there. And also you can email us at LocalZeroPod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. So... This is, it feels like a bit of an unusual episode of Local Zero because we don't have Fraser here with us today. No, I'm very, very upset about that. But he, he is alive and well, he's, he's doing just fine. He is, uh, he is otherwise engaged today. He's taken a, a, a wee break. Um, so it's Becky and I today. Uh, but that just gives us a bit more airtime to uh, discuss the, the, the key issues. So he'll be back soon. Don't, don't fear. 
so polite, Matt, to discuss the key issues. I feel like actually it's more of a rant, isn't it? Especially as we start to think oh, about Oh, sorry, rant. <laughs> That's, that was the right word. Yeah, to rant around the key issues. Absolutely. And, and there are plenty to to discuss. So we're, we're, we're going to do our good, the bad and the ugly again this week. We did have quite a lot of bad and ugly. And so Becky and I have had to be very local zero and be very optimistic and look for the good news, of which there is some. So... Um, We'll come to the bad and the ugly shortly. But one of the good news stories that I certainly picked out was around the government's contracts contracts for difference, Becky. Uh, and they've just announced basically the, the pots of money that they're going to uh, going to make available. And for the first time in a long time, we started to see technologies come back into play for subsidy. Onshore wind and ground mount solar, which you know the mainstay of many uh, community and local energy projects are back. Yeah. And I mean, that's a, that's massive, right? Because these technologies until recently have been quite heavily subsidized through various mechanisms. Uh, feed-in tariffs was obviously a massive support system. And with that dropping away, it's been a little bit harder, particularly for smaller players to get involved. So this is quite exciting news that, that there is this kind of new opportunity opening up. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've, we've basically got uh, a 10 million pound pot for what they call established technologies. So that's onshore wind, solar and hydro, all of which, you know, you, you look across Scotland, England, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland, many of the community and local projects rely on these technologies. Something like onshore wind, it was facing essentially a, a de facto planning ban as well alongside this drop wave subsidy. So big, big news, uh, really positive news. And I, just a little kind of side story to that, drilling into the, the ethos of Fraser's uh, future or fiction, he did floating off offshore wind the other day. Uh, so floating offshore wind actually is is in this, and have been ring fenced for a full twenty four million pounds. So hopefully some more projects to be seen out at sea. Um, so that was the good news. <laughs> well, I mean that is exciting. That is good news. Ten million may not be as ambitious as we had hoped for, but it's certainly hope you know a good start to to really kickstart the industry, get some more jobs going in that area as well. So hopefully it'll breathe a bit of life, but. Tell us the bad news, Matt. Okay. Well, before we get to the ugly, let's let's start with the bad news. Or again, it's always difficult to know where to put this in bad or ugly. But one thing that caught my eye was a response from the GMB union in relation to the proposed ban on new gas boilers. So you know, th this is something that if if you uh, ever ha ever have the opportunity of listening to the committee on climate change and about what they recommend needs to happen discussions around banning gas boilers in the 2030s. We don't quite know if and when this will happen, but obviously there's a strong lobby out there that are invested in gas. It was just a surprise to me to see uh, such a large union come out and say, uh, this is really bad news. We want to desperately avoid this. Now, I appreciate they will represent various uh, gas engineers and, and ga gas industries um, and the employees of those, but you know, the, the whole tone of the letter that they wrote, this open letter, was this will damage the welfare of our workers. Now, granted, if there aren't jobs to move into, and we're going to talk more about the just transition in a minute, Becky, because I know you've, you've covered the report. But if there aren't jobs to move into, that is a problem, and it will immediately damage the welfare of these workers. But of course, the welfare of these workers will be even more damaged if they're living in a world which is 1.52 degrees warming and the catastrophic implications of that. Yeah, and I think for me, sort of this, this really opens up what I think some of the underlying issues, which is that there is 
just right now, not a very good alternative to the gas boiler. So we don't have any real security around, you know, are we going for hydrogen? Are we using our heat networks for something else? We don't really know if we're shifting towards much more localized forms of district heating, or indeed if we're moving towards heat pumps. And we don't really have the industries developed around that. And, you know, I've got a lot of people I know that have installed heat pumps and the installation process has been great. You know, they found somebody that's retrained and reskilled and they, they've moved on. But when something goes wrong, there's not often the support there or there's not the understanding there. And so, you know, in the in the GMB's letter, they talk about the kind of unproven heat pump technology. I think large aspects of the technology are proven. I think that there are probably challenges getting it implemented and operational. Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, you know, how, and this whole, this whole pod is about skills and jobs and training. How on earth are we going to uh, get that supply chain up to speed and ready to deliver millions of heat pumps if, if the unions aren't going to support that move? So I just, I'd like to, there to be a, a more nuanced debate rather than we're on or off gas. You know, there's a ban or there's not a ban. The unions, I would like to think, are going to look at this and say, Things are changing. Things need to change. And we're either at the front of that change and supporting a just transition, and we require this, this, and this from government to do that, or there'll be the laggards that, that hold things back. Easy for me to say when I'm not a gas engineer, I note, okay, uh, I appreciate that, but you know, we are dealing with an existential threat, are we not? Absolutely. And, and hopefully we'll start to dig into that a little bit more in, in today's show later on with our guests who are certainly much closer to this than, than either of us, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so ugly. Yeah. What, what's been ugly this week? The ugly. So I uh, I read a, a news story in the BBC earlier this week. Uh, so it'll be a couple of weeks ago by the time the pod's released about the UK cutting our climate pledges in order to clinch a trade deal with Australia. And, you know, it's not entirely clear what that actually um, links to. Uh, looks as though, you know, less stringent measures to address global warming. Um, but for me, like, this is just despicable, particularly as we're less than two months to cop. The eyes of the world are on us. You know, we're supposed to be setting the bar really, really high for what can be happening and really pushing on this. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, if we can't, we can't have our trade deal, you know, let's kind of just go back on what we've said we'll do in order to address carbon emissions. How can we expect anybody else, whether you're talking about other nations around the world or whether you're talking about, you know, local governments, communities, households, how can you expect them to take these big steps if our government is not leading from the front? Yeah, it's the, it's the precedent it sets, isn't it? Especially just before COP. It is, it's an ugly precedent to set. I, I couldn't agree more. And also you've been doing some some homework, I guess, on on some other uh, recent releases. So, you know, I guess we're moving now more into the subject matter of today, moving away from good, the bad and the ugly. But the Just Transition report was released from Scottish government a, a few days ago. So it'll be about 10, 10 or 11 days after uh, when this pod is out. And jobs and skills are front and center of this. So what did you learn? Absolutely. Well, so so yes, the gosh, a couple of months ago now, the uh, the Scottish Just Transition Commission submitted to their recommendations in a final report to government. And Scottish government have, have now come back with their response to the Just Transition Commission, which addresses, you know, the, the national mission for a fairer, greener Scotland, which is which is nice. And I I really like the way that this actually it doesn't just address jobs and skills. It's not just about, say, the transition from oil and gas and coal to renewables. They they take a much broader focus. So I really, really 
commend that both from the commission and also, you know, in Scottish government's response. I think that, that they've addressed all of the points uh, really nicely, both around how to support um, how to support that kind of transition of the industry, as well as how to engage workers, how to engage frontline communities in that transition uh, more effectively. And as part of what they're what they're doing, they have um, developed, or rather, they're developing a national just transition planning framework. Which, as they outline, no no one else has done this. This is kind of you know first of its kind, so we can't expect it to be perfect. But I think it sets you know it sets us in the right direction. Um, and what they what they try to do is to say you know as they're looking at various kind of planning um, and development in the future, they will be looking at these various policies alongside you know the impact it has on people on citizens communities and place they will be looking at how it intertwines with job skills education they'll be looking at it in terms of how costs and benefits are distributed they'll be looking at it in terms of how it affects businesses and the economy impact on adaptation and how resilient Scotland can support itself, as well as um, kind of a broader environmental take, like remembering, you know, climate changes and carbon emissions are key, but it's it's bigger than that as well. So, so somebody's inbox is very full then, is what you're telling me. And there's a big, that, that 500 million pound just transition funders, yeah, got, got to go a long way. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, I, it's, 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 it's front and centre of what Scottish government is, is looking to do in terms of policy. And, and we'll hear it time and time again over COP26, I, I'm quite sure. Um, just before we bring in our guests um, who, you know, know, a tremendous amount about the issues around skills and jobs and training. Um, I was at a conference um, just in the last few days. In person, Matt, right? You actually physically saw other people. In person. I was physically there. I wow. was physically surrounded by other physical people. There <laughs> uh, was no Teams or Zoom. It was it was wonderful. Um, but I was sat through a really interesting presentation uh, by somebody called Rob Murphy from the Energy Utility Skills. And They'd done a survey of different kind of the skills and the, the the demographic makeup, really, of the energy sector. And what hit me in the context of a just transition was how little diversity there was, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, age diversity. Uh, there the, the really aren't that many, uh, this is the electricity sector, I should say, but really aren't that many young people. There really aren't that many women. Um, and there really, really aren't that many uh, from ethnic minorities, or I should say, from phys with physical and learning disabilities as well. So a really interesting uh, subject. And I just watched. It, I was like, wow! If there's ever a sector that needs to have a big, you know, dollop of diversity to em emboss that justice dimension, it's the electricity and energy sector. So yeah, really enjoyed that. Uh, big hat tip to Rob, and look forward to seeing more from them on that. Yeah, and I think for me, this sort of also ties in with some of the points raised in the Scottish government's response that we were just talking about, um, where they talk about co-designing and co-delivering, uh, you know, policies and, and projects and, and so on moving forwards. And I think that this idea of, you know, thinking about how you are more inclusive, how you encourage more participation is really great and exciting. But I think we need to also be moving away from just this idea of, you know, more innovative forms of consultation or citizens juries and start to think about actually bringing a diverse group of people into the workforce. Like let's not go out to these communities and ask them to volunteer their time and tell us what to do. Let's actually integrate them into 
doing it and delivering it and and as you say diversifying and, and seeing very different perspectives uh that are actually involved in setting that agenda agreed and i'm hoping we can hear a little bit more from joe and adam on exactly that so without further ado shall we bring them in I'm Dr. Joe Patterson. I'm a senior research fellow at the Welsh School of Architecture at Cardiff University. And for the last 12 years, I've been um, installing whole house energy systems into buildings. So that's combining renewables, uh, demand reduction technologies, internal wall insulation, external wall, wall insulation, loft insulation, and then combining that with renewables, um, PVs, and battery storage as well. So that to try and reduce carbon emissions, but also improve the building's stock for the residents and to reduce energy bills. So it's working a lot with social housing companies to try and replicate the systems across different types of housing stock. My name's Adam Chapman. I am predominantly a, uh, an installer of renewable products. Um, we uh, have a showroom over in Surrey uh, with various things on display. But more recently, I am the founder or co-founder of HeatGeek, which is an online training academy for engineers to move into the renewable space and also to inform uh, consumers as, as well as installers on YouTube of any potential pitfalls and, and just make up for the, the vast lack of knowledge there is in, in this space. So Joe, Adam, welcome to Local Zero. Thank you for making the time. Um, I think we we begin very much with the question around you know the types of skills we need to deliver net zero and smart homes. So we know that there's a big challenge out there in terms of getting our homes fighting fit to tackle climate change. But the question is, what kinds of skills, what kind of people, professions do we need to do that? Uh, probably going to be quite a long answer because there's a lot of people involved. But um, maybe, Joe, if we can be begin with, with, with you. Sure. Um, yeah, so through our experiences at the Welsh School of Architecture in, in installing technologies into the built environment, we've kind of identified a six-stage process that's involved with the whole implementation of energy systems. So you need, you need to design the system accordingly and appropriately for the particular building or build group of buildings then you need and, and you need to plan it as well so the planning and design is critical obviously you need um, skills at that point so and that tends to be your engineers your architects people with professional skills there's a procurement process then which is also critical to ensure that that design is transferred into the installation and implementation point because if there's a if there's elements that are missed from that design stage in the procurement, then huge problems can occur. And then you obviously you've got the installation stage, which is you know the, the stage that everybody thinks about, which is your the electricians, your plumbers, those people on the ground that are working usually local. And then obviously you've got your maintenance and operational stage as well. And again, those electricians, plumbers, technical staff are involved in that. That in that final step so it's it's a it's, there is a huge broad range of skills and that's increasing as as the system becomes more complex and all of these people really need to work together to ensure that everything's done as efficiently and effectively as possible excellent uh, adam anything to add there in terms of the types of skills people we need to do the job yeah sure uh, so uh, historically the issue we've had especially in 
So my, my angle is more from the heat pump, I suppose, installation um, perspective. Uh, uh, historically, we've obviously had combination boilers, which you can go into a house, plop it on the wall, plug it in, and it will work. You don't really have to know anything. Uh, pretty much anyone could just walk into that space and become a, a combination boiler installer. And what with what's you know set to replace boilers, that's just not going to work. Um, uh, you need to actually size pipe. You need to uh, understand mass flow rate. You need to uh, understand the volume of the system and how that affects things like cycling and and all of these tweaks and little adjustments. Uh, all the things that you can do to take a heat pump installation from a cop of 1.5 up to a cop of 5.5. And that there You're going to have to explain that. So, yeah. You're going to have to the, dig the, into that for the, us, right? The, the, <laughs> yeah, do we need the jargon alarm? But yeah. So, so cop is, uh, uh, if you have a cop of two, it means if you put in one kilowatt hour of electricity, you get out two kilowatt hours of heat. So, the cop is the, um, the, the, uh, the amount of kilowatts you can output for every one uh, kilowatt uh, hour of electricity in. Um, so, uh, and, and that's the basic problem we have is with, with combination boilers or, or any normal boiler, condensing boiler, you're going to end up with a, a COP of, of 0.9, which is efficiency of 90%. With a heat pump, you literally have 150% efficiency, which is a COP of 1.5, or up to six, a COP of up to six in some scenarios. Uh, and and this, this, there's two kind of ways this is going to kind of uh, reflect in our industry. There's one good thing where good reputable installers uh, can prove their work. They've got a, a track record uh, of their history and, you know, you can bring back their previous customers, ask what your cop was, uh, or it's going to just highlight that no one really knew what they were doing. And, it, you know, we failed miserably, which is what Heat Geek's about. You know, we've, we've got training to, to help people tweak these tiny bits to, to build up this cop because it's, it's not outside the reach of um, normal human beings. You don't have to be a rocket scientist but just the information wasn't out there uh, historically. And, and, and the information that was out there is written, it's, it's written in an academic format. It's not an assess, uh, accessible, attainable way of um, uh, general installers to be able to consume. And that's kind of where the idea of HeatGeek came from. You know, we, we've read a few Sibsy journals in our time and things like that. Uh, and we knew that that could be relayed in a much more simple, easy to understand way to consumers and installers. You're bringing up some, uh, a lot of really interesting points. And, you know, so what, I've, what I'm hearing from both of you is, first of all, it's not just one thing, but there's like six different functions. And then within that, you've got multiple different technologies. And if we just choose one of those technologies, because I know, Joe, you talked about obviously, you know, various forms of insulation, you talked about generation, storage, and so on. But if we just dig into one single technology, which is how we heat our homes, there's a huge amount of complexity, a huge difference in what we've got today and what we need going forward. And that, that knowledge is just perhaps not there or not there in the right form. But I wonder as well, like, you know, yes, we need to, so we need to learn a lot more to install these things, but it's not just getting the installation in, right? So I, I know quite a few people that have had heat pumps installed. They've been so excited. I mean, yes, they're probably like, we could probably say they're, you know, energy geeks or uh, um, climate geeks or whatever, really wanted to go down this path, have had a heat pump installed. It's worked for a bit. It stopped working. No one knows why. Can't figure out what the problem is. Can figure out some work workarounds, but I think there's like, it's a big challenge in this kind of ongoing way. And I, I'm just wondering if you're seeing this follow through, because to me, some of the issues that are coming out says to me that we just don't have, like, it's not even about having the right skills. We don't even have the supply chains. We don't have 
a solid enough industry to support this technological change through the journey of a home. And I'm just wondering like how you're seeing that play out as well. You know, do we have weak points? Are there particular strengths that we can build on? I mean, Adam, with your training, are you just focusing on the installation or is there is there kind of this broader, you know, longevity aspect built into it? So uh, the government have set a target of 600,000 heat pumps to be installed every year. And there's currently 1,900 registered uh, heat pump installers on the MCS database. The numbers kind of speak for themselves. We don't have enough installers or even anywhere close to what we need to have. With with the long-term maintenance, um, it all comes down to the installation. The better it's installed, the longer things last. So it all does point to the same thing. And that is kind of what our our training does teach. It's how to do the install. It's also helpful information as to... uh, when you go and assess a system that's broken down, you can say, oh, they didn't size the pipe right here. That's why you haven't got the flow right over there or et cetera, et cetera. Another issue uh, we have is if someone wants to become a heat pump installer, they can be NVQ level three in heating or two in heating, which means they're a heating engineer. They can connect pipes together. But if they want to move it to heat pumps, uh, they go on a two-day BPEC course, which is an attendance course. So uh, some of them are three days. Uh, so they attend, they might not be conscious for those three days and they get their certificate at the end. Uh, if they were conscious, they didn't learn a lot. They learned a lot about what's inside the unit. Now, most uh, heat pumps these days are what are called monoblock. They're all sealed. It's one box that you fit outside. All as you're doing is connecting a flow pipe and a return pipe. The most important thing an installer has to do is know how to size those pipes and how to hydraulically lay out the inside to suit that product. And uh, that's not taught on a big pet course. They just assume we know it and we, we don't know it. There isn't information out there. And this fact about sizing is critical. And like, Joe, I'm pretty sure you've had this, like once you start to bring in the whole house, right, particularly if you're retrofitting and you're insulating at the same time, you've run into countless challenges with that, haven't you? We sure, yeah, we definitely have. We, I mean, one of the larger boiler supply or heat pump suppliers, we um, asked for a quote for a heat pump and they didn't ask us anything about the building apart from its age and they size the heat pump for the age of the house regardless of what measures were installed and because it was a part of a deep retrofit they didn't consider the fact that we were installing external wall insulation new windows and significantly improving or reducing the heat losses and and the, so the the system was massively oversized because they didn't take oh, they, geographical location. They thought it was sea level. It was it was in Wales. It was not sea level. So it, I think there is a there's a huge change needs to happen within the process of size. You know, sizing a system behind by the engineers and the manufacturers to make sure that systems get sized correctly to to save money. You know, this for the price of one heat pump you could, that is way oversized, you could get two or you know a couple. So um, it's critical, really. So, Joe, you mentioned earlier in, in the kind of list that what I really like, the kind of six pinch points or key points of, of any uh, install or retrofit. And towards the, the back end, I think you, you you mentioned something which the devil is in the detail of what you said, which was around somebody who links all this together, somebody who can, can connect these these different trades at different points and has almost oversight of that retrofit that does things like you've just said accounts for the specific building not the broad type of building but also the occupants in that building and how it's used so do these people exist and if so how have they trained what kind of skills do they have they, 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 so there is a re- within this, the retrofit um 
package. So you've got retrofit advisor, you've got retrofit assessor, retrofit coordinator, designer and evaluator. And there's training available for each of those different um, roles within a retrofit. The coordinator role is the most like what you've described. Um, but the training doesn't go anywhere near what it needs to to be able to fulfill or to achieve the skills that are really needed to deliver a successful retrofit because it it, it needs some to be to be bought into the whole process you know they need to be there from the start to the finish they need like you said they need to be communicating with the residents they need to be communicating and, and they need to have a general overview of what each element is and how they, they don't need to know the technical or they need to have a bit of an information about the technical they don't need to be a technical expert but they need to have that vision that the system works in that building and it also works together and is appropriate for where it's going and who is going to be using it so adam with your installs is your company that company that we've just been referring to that or or are you specifically looking at maybe the, the heating installs for example a heat pump and you're working with another company who's bringing all those elements together um, no, we, we would be contacted by the consumer directly uh, and it would be specifically because they've asked for a heat pump. When you uh, speak to a credible installer about a heat pump, he will first of all do a heat loss on your property, which may be charged for, uh, to size your heat pump right, because uh, as Joe said earlier on, sizing the heat pump is incredibly important, not because the heat pump is, might be a bit more expensive, but because if you overpower your heat pump, your heat pump will cycle. It will flip on and off. And when it flips on and off, it loses efficiency. So they'll go and do this, this heat loss. Uh, and as part of that, you'll, you'll be able to work out your emitter sizing, which is your radiators and your underfloor. And off the back of that, you'll find out what temperature you can run the system at. Now, the temperature you run the system at is the most crucial part of a, a heat pump install and what all listeners or anyone purchasing a heat pump should take in as the most you know uh, important piece of information your installer should be talking to you about what flow temperatures you're going to run at and as part of that discussion you obviously naturally talk about insulation uh, if we're going to struggle to heat if we want to aim for a flow temperature of 40 degrees for example in room a over here uh, and we're not going to do that with that small radiator and there's not enough wall space we're going to have to look at adding insulation to that room or some other solution so i'm not too sure other solutions Joe uh, is talking about exactly, but we that's kind of our approach. It's an insulation versus heat pump approach. Or we, we've got another product right here, actually, a hydrogen fuel cell, which maybe I'll talk to you a bit about at the end, which is an alternative solution. So yeah, we, we kind of talk about the other solutions. We're not so much automation though, um, because automation can work against a heat pump, uh, which is a quite a big topic to go down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... <laughs> I get a bit scared when we start talking about automation in the in the house. So um, for Christmas, which feels like it only just happened, even though it was quite some months ago, my sister-in-law bought us a little Alexa. And it terrifies me how much she's listening. No, when we don't even say her name. And then I think, okay, she can't really do that much because she's not connected up to anything else in my home. So the minute you start talking about automation um, of these technologies that actually fundamentally control the things that keep us warm and keep us alive in our homes, it, it truly starts to terrify me. But you also bring up a really important point, like regardless of whether it goes in or not, we are starting to see these homes where we have more and more technologies coming together, whether it's heat pumps or other forms of clean heating, um, 
whether we've got some form of supply, whether we've got some form of storage. And, you know, we often think about the bat the big batteries, but we might have, um, you know, storage, for example, in your water tanks. I know that there are a number of companies out there that are looking at how hot water tanks can provide that sort of storage, that smart storage. So we're not only trying to make the home smarter. So I think, I think, you know, we're going beyond. And certainly some homes will be just switching out, you know, their existing technology for a new technology. But really, if we need to do this properly, it's quite clear that we need to also be looking at the insulation and how those buildings are integrated into our networks. And if we just come back and think a bit more holistically, moving from gas boilers to heat pumps puts a huge load on our electricity networks that they have not been designed for. And to be able to do that, we need to have some sort of flexibility. There needs to be some sort of smarter control that connects our buildings to the grid. And all of a sudden, you don't have this standalone home anymore, but you've got something that might be smarter, whether automated or or whatever. And I just start to think, you know, the training that we've been talking about simply to get people to be able to install heat pumps. And then if we're expanding that and saying, actually, it's not just that, but it's all of these other technologies and it's connecting the technologies and it's then integrating it with the grid. I mean, what sort of retraining do we actually need to see here and who needs to be doing it? Because Adam, your company can't be doing everything, right? You've got a real deep dive focus. And I know, Joe, you do a lot of work with those kind of bigger whole system projects. I mean, are you seeing any push, whether it's from like Welsh government, whether it's from the engineering academies to support that training? Like who's going to be delivering that? It is coming. I mean, just speaking from the Welsh School of Architecture's point of view, the um, Royal Institute of British Architects is now is introducing the climate literacy literacy knowledge schedule. This is coming in, is going to be coming into, you know, all taught um, practices in schools of architecture. So it's, it's, it is happening. Whether that is going to be integrated enough is still the big question. We can't all be expected to know everything. It's, it's not possible. But I think if people understand why the changes are needed, I think that really helps. And we found that with residents. We found that speaking to electricians and plumbers. If they know why they're doing something differently to what they were doing before, it helps them to deliver the project better and it helps them to operate what they're using better. It's just it is introducing things like digitalization and IT. But again, the people that program or, or create the, di- the data collection processes don't know how to solve the problems that they're identifying because they're not the engineers. So that communication has to happen between experts. And I think one of the really massive skills that has to happen is communication and collaboration because people need to be able to speak to each other. They don't need to know what they all are experts in, but they need to be able to speak to each other in a way that they can understand and share problems and solve them. I see you nodding along vigorously, Adam. Yeah, it's just it's a bugbear of mine. We're trying to fix the same problem that or similar problems that we've always had with an old solution. So uh, technology is moving faster than ever before, and it's only going to continue. And I don't think the uh, regulatory process that we have in heating or uh, building or anything like that can possibly keep up with it anymore. It's the same with the law. You know, I I ride an electric skateboard to work because I don't want a car uh, and I'm cool. (laughs) <laughs> or I think I am. But that's actually not legal because uh, I can't insure it and it needs insurance. But that's because the law's not up to date. I'm going the cleanest way I can get. I mean, I could run or walk, I suppose, but I don't want to. I want to go on my electric skateboard. Uh, but the law's not up to date. But it's the same with installations. As stuff changes, 
you can't put this regulatory stuff in place to make people do this one thing because before you know it, it'll be out of date and that will be working against you. So what we need instead is a living, breathing community of people, as Joe said, that are communicating with each other. And this is what the basis for Heat Geek. It was people sharing ideas and teaching each other and having a base for this information or, or uh, bases, i.e. social media, is the best way we can educate. And education is, is the solution, not just for the lack of engineers, but also for the consumer. The question is, and, and Adam raised this before, is about the, the number of installers that we require. Uh, so we need... 600,000 install uh, sorry 600,000 heat pumps adam you were mentioning we've got one and a half thousand roughly installers so how do we get people to train up and to tool up with these skills that we need that is the million dollar question i mean there's going to be less and less trades available as time moves forward isn't there because of automation so um i guess that there's going to be people looking for different types of work anyway uh, uh, and I don't know how we're going to force people to sort of move into this area. I think we have to value the people that are working in the sector a lot more. I, and, you know, I think it's been a, a kind of traditional thing that if somebody isn't doing particularly well in school, what do they go and do? They become an electrician or a plumber or, or a builder or, you know, like a brickie or something. I think those trades need to be valued a lot more and to be to deliver a quality built environment where choices are much wider those people need to be able to be trained better to be able to make decisions uh, you know that make the right decisions across the board otherwise we're not going to reach the carbon savings that we need to so so for these for these professions to be seen as in as a respected profession as something which is desirable yeah that test of oh, what is it you do and somebody says well i'm a heat pump engineer and those are okay you know Wow, tell me more. Yeah, it's like what Adam said before, you know, you'd go in, you'd install a gas boiler, you know, it's kind of very straightforward. Whereas whereas now, if you're going to do a whole systems retrofit, which includes the demand reduction, it might include storage, might include renewables as well. You've got to upgrade the electrical system. You've got to make sure that all the systems are sized correctly. You've got to make sure that the EWI is, or external wall insulation is the right thickness. Somebody's got to know how about what 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 elements work well together, or whether you're going to create an environment that's, you know, humid that the ventilation isn't right. Somebody's this people have got to be able to be aware of that, and it's people on the ground that are doing the work, sort of deliver that. Very well put, Joe. Uh, we we do need to re respect the the engineers a lot more. It's an incredible amount of information they need to know, and historically, uh, with especially heat pumps. They put all the onus on the back office end because that's where the shirt and ties are and the installer, he'll just plug the pipes together. No, the most important part of that process is the last person putting the pipes together is another part of, part of the issue. There's a lot less money in installing heat pumps than there is gas boilers. We make much more installing gas boilers than we do on heat pumps because of the amount of paperwork there is. So, um, you know, typically if you try to fill a, a market or something, you have more money in it, but we don't. Installation prices are already too expensive and people are doing it for the love. The reason we install heat pumps is because it's the right thing to do. So it, it's it's a difficult, difficult question. That's not that's not going to grow grow an industry, is it? We need something more than that. No. And, and, and here's another part. So a lot of people say, well, perhaps as we do more heat pumps, they'll get cheaper and cheaper. 
Unfortunately, uh, most of the installation of a heat pump is putting together pipe work and hanging radiators and walls. We've been doing that for, you know, 90 years or something. That's not getting any cheaper. The actual heat pump bit is only a fraction. The box that you purchase is a fraction of the cost. Even if that came down by 50, you know, 50%, 20, you know, or, or anything like that, you're, you're going to be shaving a total of about five to 10% of the total installation costs. So unfortunately, it, it just is an expensive thing. However, once you've done that job, it's incredibly cheap to swap in the future because it's already, all the infrastructure's already in there. It's only because it's originally set up for a gas boiler that made it so difficult. And this is where the gas boiler industry lets down. When we had, in 2005, we had uh, condensing boilers mandated, which basically means um, they extract more heat out of, the, uh, out of the flue and that condenses down into a liquid. So they're perfect for low temperature operation. We can get a lot more efficiency out of them. Back in 2005, we should have looked at low temperature heating then. And if we did, instead of just stacking them onto the systems we've always had, we'd have low temperature systems everywhere right now and it would just be a plug and play process. Instead, we dropped the ball massively uh, and we're let down with education. We weren't educated. There was a big gap here. It's, it's just a shame because we could just be in a much better position than we are at the moment. This seems like a good moment to listen into Fraser's discussion with Jonathan Atkinson, the co-founder of Carbon Co-op. The main thing that we want to talk about is the, the People Powered Retrofit, which is the, the big project that, that you guys have got going on just now. For the listeners who don't know what, it, what this is, could you explain what it is that the Carbon Co-op does? Yeah, sure. Carbon Co-op really came out of uh, a few of us uh, who set the organisation up. Our kind of frustrations with the the climate change movement and uh, taking climate change action in particular, the feeling that people on their own feel quite marginalised and quite small and quite limited in what they can do to tackle something so big as climate change. So we came up with the idea of the Carbon Co-op as a way of people working together to take collective action either in their own homes or in their own communities on climate change and to make some of the big savings in carbon emissions that we know we need uh, to make those kind of carbon emission reductions. Uh, So it focused mostly on domestic uh, energy emissions, on uh, retrofitting homes, on uh, advocating for more kind of smart home technologies and that sort of thing but really it's a way for people to take collective action on climate change access technical expertise and be part of a like-minded group of people doing the same thing so you've just launched your your big people powered retrofit initiative can you talk us through what that's all about yeah uh, people powered retrofit came out of the work we've been doing on retrofit which has been over maybe uh, 10 years now And it's been around trying to find ways to help people do deep retrofit on their homes. So that's like multiple measures, insulation of the floors, ceilings, walls, triple glazed windows, new heat systems like heat pumps, solar PV and alike. And um, really trying to make those big inroads into domestic carbon emissions. And we've done a number of funded projects and got people so far. Uh, we developed an assessment methodology which enabled people to assess their own homes or, or for us to send out assessors to assess their homes and see what they could have done and, and what kind of costs it would, would amount to. But what we found is that that got, got people so far, uh, but they tended to get bogged down. They, they tended to find the whole thing quite complex. They tended to feel that there were quite a lot of risks involved. 
and had a lot of challenges to find the right kind of technical expertise and also the right kind of contractors as well. So People Powered Retrofit came out of that really, an end-to-end service to help people get all the way from just simply thinking about retrofit all the way through to getting it done. It's an amazing thing. I've, I've been following the uh, the media content you've been putting out really, really keenly. And it seems to be going well. So you've you've launched a share offer to, to back this as part of the, the Carbon Co-op. Can you explain a bit more why you chose to, to do it with this model, with the cooperative model, with people investing? Is there a, a reasoning behind that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we, we've been running People Power Rich for the last couple of years, just demonstrating it, testing it, piloting it. The reason we chose community shares as a way to do this, it comes from our uh, form, uh, our organisational form, which is a, a cooperative community benefit society. And that's an organisation not for profit by its very kind of constitution, owned and run by the members on a one member, one vote basis. These kind of organisations and corporate forms have been around since the 1840s, since the start of cooperatives. So we're part of that very lineage, really. How a community share offer uh, works is that you you sell member shares in the organisation. People invest, you raise the income, uh, and then you have a membership, a a membership of member investors uh, who who co-own the organisation and are bought in not only to the business, but also to the mission of that organisation. So that's what really appealed to us about community shares, because it's a way of Yes, raising that income and and capitalising the organisation, but doing so in a way which reflects that collective action on climate change, really. Brilliant. And we we find it as well with Glasgow Community Energy, with community energy in general, historically, I know they don't need to tell you this and a lot of the listeners, but it is, it's that sort of purpose, mission-led kind of investment into it, isn't it, That's that buys into an idea more than just of making houses better, but the bigger action, the bigger collective action question, isn't it? It comes back to what we're discussing about Carbon Corp and our founding mission. Uh, for me, the energy transition is taking place. There's no uh, argument about that. That is happening now. For us, it's about how that transition takes place and how citizens uh, and people and communities are involved in that transition. A transition that is run, managed and owned by large corporations and, and energy energy supply energy suppliers and the big six and what have you, that's going to lack legitimacy. And it's also going to be a process where where it happens to people rather than people are actively involved with it. But the big changes we're going to see in people's homes, people need to be involved in that process. They need to offer consent, they need to participate, and they need to own the benefits of, of that process as well. So bringing it back into into people's homes then, Jonathan, that deals with the collective, but bringing it back to the the practicalities of the process, right? Because our listeners are very much switched on. They're very much looking to what can we do about this ourselves or what are the the challenges and processes. As you see it from running the pilots of of People Power Retrofit, from incarnations of this in the past, what do you see as the main sort of sticking points, the main issues in the process in terms of whether that's training, linking people up with skills? What's your experience been? Absolutely. I mean, the funny thing about Retrofit is it doesn't require new technologies to be invented or or new processes. Everything is there. Everything's in place. We know and we've known for many years how to retrofit a hope. That isn't the sticking point. What certainly is one of the sticking points is the availability of the supply chain. 
We have uh, hundreds of thousands of very high quality contractors that work in our homes that come and repair kitchens, convert lofts, build extensions, that sort of thing. What they aren't tooled with at the moment are the skills to retrofit a home. Um, these are relatively new uh, to the to the average construction worker, the average trade. Um, so there's a job there, job in hand to skill up, to train up both existing contractors, but also people new to the to the contracting world as well. And a lot of the pilot work of People Powered Retrofit has been about creating a service that works for people, you know, and people are involved in that and the householders are involved in that process. Yeah, absolutely. Something that I did see and and coming back to the skills and now we've spoken about this separately and you know how excited I get about it, the idea of the training that you guys do at Carbon Co-op, the work that you do with contractors. Can you talk to the listeners a little bit just about the, the not necessarily from, from this incarnation of People Power Retrofit, but about the training work that you do and some of the experience that you've had with that with contractors and and people new to the the industry alike. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think there's a there's a conception of training for for construction workers amongst policymakers, which is around classrooms, getting people to get pieces of paper, uh, getting them off site and into you know a learning environment. Now. All the experience from us, but also the expertise in other parts of the world, um, we've particularly been looking at areas in America around this, shows that the best training for contractors is on site, at their place of work. It's not taking them out of that. It's applied learning. It's peer learning as well. So people are sharing skills within their own companies, but also between skill sets as well on the same building sites. So it's very applied and involved. The classroom-based learning really isn't that effective, and it it takes people off site. It costs them time. It costs them money. That's it, and I think that's that's something that that, that you find when you talk about the the just transition more broadly. When we talk about the job side of things, not even just retrofit, is that a lot of people, a lot of people who've worked in whether that's oil and gas or or it's contractors on sites and stuff, a lot of people are very much open to to a change. It's just supporting them to do that. I guess is the is the big issue. Absolutely. I mean, my dad was an electrician, worked his whole life uh, as an electrician, uh, and was involved in plumbing as well to a degree. He's he's so enthusiastic about heat pumps, solar panels, uh, into the detail of the even the energy meters, you know, electricity meters, gas meters, and smart meters. There's a huge amount of enthusiasm for this. There's opportunities for contractors to create like added value, basically to to um, to, to improve the quality of the work they do to to access more resources in doing it. One of the fears that people have, based on things like the solar PV industry that came out came out overnight, you know, and wasn't particularly good in its terms and conditions. People are rightly fearful that these new jobs won't be unionized, there won't be a decent pay, the conditions will be dodgy. Ensuring a just transition is really important. Uh, and it is a um, an understandable fear that many people have. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's not enough to tell people there's a job for you if that job isn't sustainable, if that job isn't good quality, good conditions, fair work, as the kind of the the rules and the stipulations are here just now as well. One thing that did spring out to me from the People Power Retrofit from an article, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, was that. From this initiative alone, you expect to create in excess of 3,000, I think it was 3,500 jobs potentially. 
that you guys think can be created through people-powered retrofit with the obviously the, the benefits for people in their homes. Do you think this model is something that we can start to see replicated and scaled across other places in the UK? Absolutely. I mean, retrofit, energy efficiency, home improvements, these are really of great interest both to other community energy organisations such as ourselves, uh, not only in parts of the UK, but in, in other parts of Europe as well. We do a lot of work with uh, ResCoop, the European uh, body that represents uh, citizen-led energy co-ops. But as well as community energy groups, uh, a lot of local authorities see this as a really big win for them, really, because it's not only about tackling climate change, tackling uh, home improvements and health, but it's also about local economic uh, factors and what what local authorities really would like would be to develop these small scale markets on a neighborhood basis where you have houses being retrofitted um tradespeople being trained up and new local economies new local businesses circular economies being built in those areas um rather than I'd have to typify the existing approach to retrofit or the traditional approach to retrofit, let's say, that has been uh, government-led, which has been to bring tier one large contractors, Carillion and like, into an area to try and blitz retrofit, do it not so well, not, not to such a high quality, leave the area and leave kind of scorched ground, really, and, and, a, and a lack of jobs almost and a lack of expertise in that area because of their employment practices. I think I think p- things like People Power Retrofit offer a very different vision of local economic benefit and, and development. And so final final point, Jonathan, on the People Powered Retrofit, you've got a, a big share offer open just now that I'm sure our listeners will be very, very interested in. Uh, what is it you're trying to raise and where can they find the share offer? <laughs> Thanks, Razor. Thanks for the plug. Uh, yeah, the share issue is live on the FX platform, E-T-H-E-X, uh, People Powered Retrofit. It's easy to find there. Uh, we're aiming to raise £550,000 and the share offers open uh, until the 30th of November and people can invest for as little as £250 or upwards from there. But all the information, all the documentation, all the business plans and such are on that website. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Brilliant. Thank you. It's great to hear Carbon Co-op's perspective there. Now back to our chat with Joe and Adam. So we've got a lot of work to do to get more people into the sector, you know, incentivize it more, value it more, really recognize it. Earlier in the episode, Matt was bringing up some figures for just how undiverse the, um, the electricity sector is. And I trained as an engineer and I can tell you that was not a particularly diverse um, classroom either. So should we be looking as we're trying to kind of grow the sector and target more? Like, do we need to be thinking more about diversity? Should we be trying to reach out to different groups of people? You know, Adam, I'm wondering what are the sorts of um, people that are coming through your training program? Is it kind of quite typical of the existing sector? Are you getting more diversity? And do you see any opportunities to increase that? It's like, we, it's not should we, we literally have to diversify. If someone wants to get into this industry now, they just should do because there's a lot of space here to fill. Uh, and yes, you're not going to be the best at the beginning and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But there's so much room to grow. Getting in now would be the best thing to do because you'll be able to grow as the industry grows because the industry is going to grow whether you like it or not. 
Um, uh, so yeah, uh, you know, if this is an advert, that's what I'd say for it. It's it's a great space to be in, and if you've got an installation company like we have, you know, even finding time for today was just difficult. But you know, <laughs> I wanted to do it. Um, uh, it. It's it's so busy. It is so busy out there. I can imagine. And Joe, like, do you ever sit? around the table or in these conversations and feel like the odd one out in the room? Like, is it is it difficult or do you think that things are changing, uh, you know, quite nicely? Yes, it, it, it is changing. I think people are becoming more um, respectful of the broader spectrum of people involved in the, the sector. I think there, you know, I think there is a still that pigeonhole in people into certain roles. But there's, I mean, there's two, two, two point, well, two, 2.7 million people employed in the construction sector as a whole and 85 billion pounds worth of planned investment over the next couple of years so the i mean and that's just going to grow if the mark if it delivers you know if we deliver on local energy systems smart local energy system we have to achieve net zero by 2050 somebody's got to deliver that well not just one person obviously that would be but you know there's a huge raft of people that have to deliver that right across the expertise board my two kids 13 and 15 i'm trying to push them into this the sector because it's the opportunities are massive and the opportunities are so broad as well you know then you could virtually do anything you know you've got environmental coordinators carbon carbon calc you know involved in carbon calculations right all the way through the whole sector is massively varied so um I should just give a quick advert, if, if you don't mind. Uh, we're actually sponsoring the women's stand at the Installer Show. So the Installer Show is at the end of September, and there's a stand uh, to help any uh, women trying to move into the sort of installation industry, which we're sponsoring, uh, and there'll be a ton of information there and discount from our course. Excellent. And I think there's just there's one very quick follow-up on that is often when, often when people talk about training, in my mind, I'm thinking 16-year-old, 21-year-old. I'm thinking young. And I think, Joe, what you've just been pointing out, and that's crucial, right? The, the young generation are going to either deliver net zero or they're, or they're not. But there's retraining. Adam, I know you were saying originally you were a gas engineer. You still are. I'm sure if my boiler breaks down, you'll be able to come around and fix it. How do we get folk who are maybe, you know, at the, the middle or the latter end of their careers to retrain? I think, uh, you know, particularly smart individuals could step into this industry and do very well off the bat. The issue I said was the one that I mentioned earlier, which is I don't think there's a lot of money <laughs> at the moment. Um, uh, and I don't really know how I, I wouldn't even know where to start addressing that. I think there certainly has to be, I guess you guys are aware of the um, levies placed on electrical costs versus gas. Uh, that's obviously going to do something with the industry. But at the moment, we've got so much demand and not enough installers, yet the prices are low. So that doesn't fit with the supply. Uh, you know, uh, demand thing. So, sorry, I can't give you a better answer. No, well, <laughs> I'm not sure anybody has the answer, unless Joe, you do. Well, I think with all the all the pro, we've, we, I mean, we've worked on quite a fifth, twelve projects, and we've retrofitted numerous houses. We've done a lot of new builds, affordable new build, low carbon houses as well. And everybody seems to want to change and want to learn. It's just not kind of knowing, well, not knowing where to go to learn the basics and then and just understanding why the change is needed. But and there's there's also, you know, accredited courses, the things that they have to have going forwards and then things that are kind of nice to have and things that they're kind of just interested in learning. But, yeah, I've spoken to 60 plus year old 
electricians that have been in the trade for I think one one of them said this is the best job I've ever worked on I've learned so much it's, it's kind of inspired me to keep going you know so I think the the, the desire to for, to be trained is there it's just making sure it fits in with working practices and I think it's, there's also a thing of changing the culture of training as well and that needs to happen in schools further education and higher education in that once you've gone through those traditional education path systems you need to keep training and that needs to be part of your job going forwards rather than right i've done my my, i've done my education i'm trained now and that's the end of it It, i think the culture has to change to keep that training going yeah like a cpd approach you know we're constantly learning and evolving but listen Joe, Adam, thank you so much indeed. Um, I'm hoping you might stick around for uh, the next section. Normally at this point, I hand over to Fraser and Fraser's itching to take the microphone and to do his his thing, which is future or fiction. Uh, he's, uh, unfortunately, he's not here today. But um, we were hoping that we could ask you both, given that his future or fiction thing is normally giving us you know, a uh question around whether this is an innovation of the future or or, or it's actually fiction given that you're involved in uh, the building sector engineering heating we just wondered if there's any innovations you've come across in recent months that's got you very excited that you've looked at this and thought "Mm." and it might not be a technology it might be you know a new business model it might be a new service but is there anything out there that you think our listeners should know about uh, that could be a key driver of net zero homes and buildings. Actually, I can show you. So um, this is something we've actually been installing for um, quite a while. This is a hydrogen fuel cell. I I should pause there, Adam, and say to the listeners that what we're looking at looks like the dashboard of the Star Trek Enterprise. Um, There is a pulsating purple light. uh, A Well, I'll I'll just shush now, but you'll have to explain what it is because it looks pretty space age. Well, the the pulsating flashing light was from Amazon and it's an additional thing for our showroom to make it look smart. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But the the rest of the box is a hydrogen fuel cell. Uh, Now, it's quite a uh, controversial product uh, and surprisingly little people, uh, amount of people know about it. when we can't fit a heat pump, because heat pumps just can't be afforded in some homes because of the amount of insulation needed on their potentially grade two listed building, etc. Uh, and perhaps there isn't enough government funding and there should be, because I think heat pumps are the long-term solution. This is the other thing that we suggest to them. This takes in natural gas, so it does use natural gas and it has got a natural uh, a carbon footprint, but it's much lower than the typical power stations that we may that support the grid. Uh, takes in natural gas, uh, uses a steam reformation to um, separate that into carbon uh, dioxide and hydrogen. And it uses the hydrogen in a hydrogen fuel cell process to generate electricity for the home and heat for the home. Uh, it generates around about 6,000 kilowatt hours a year, which is much better than a, a typical PV installation. And it produces its peak in the winter, whereas you know that's when we use most of our power. PV produces its peak in the summer, which is when you need less power, which is obviously annoying. So, uh, yeah, that's my kind of little product. It looks future. And if Fraser had pitched that to us, I'd have gone, oh, well, I hope that's true. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so brilliant. Thank you, Adam. And Joe, uh, anything that you've come across? I guess it's kind of similar in the same sort of lines as what Adam said, really. we've In, a, in quite a lot of our new builds, we've used an exhaust air heat pump. One of the, the, down, the down points of the traditional air source heat pump is that it has, has to have quite a cumbersome looking external 
air exchange unit, whereas the exhaust heat pump that we've installed in our new builds is um, is all in one unit. It's about the same size as a fridge a fridge freezer. Having that mechanical ventilation and the heat recovery system, which freshens the air, the hot water tank and the heating system all in one place. You don't need radiators or anything else. The only other, the only sort of heating element is the vents in uh, the system pipework in the the ceilings and to provide the fresh air. And it works really well. It does provide a nice, comfortable living environment, uh, low carbon, and provides you with the fresh air as well. So I think it's the best component of our systems that we've found to date. But like like Adam said, it's only applicable in well-insulated homes at the moment. And this is where we start getting into the kind of broader discussion, which we don't have time for today, which is about how livable and enjoyable the space is to be. And so if there's fresh air in your house, then, you know, you're going to be all the happier for it. It's not just about keeping it at room temperature. But Joe, Adam, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for coming today. It's been a real blast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Joe, and thank you, Adam. That was amazing, and I'm so inspired to try and do something about my quite old and and, uh, not very well-heated home. You've been listening to Local Zero. If you haven't already, go and find us and follow us on social media at Local Zero Pod and get involved with discussions there. Also remember, you can email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. But now I think all that's left to say is thank you again to our guests. Thanks for listening and uh, bye till next time. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.